0: So much for a comeback. Stocks are falling hard. Giving back yesterday's gains as the Wall Street sell off intensifies. As we speak, we're looking at session lows for the Nasdaq and the S&P. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome everyone to Closing Bell. I'm Sarah Eisen. Take a look at where we stand right now in the market. There's the Dow down 666 points. Hard to find a winner today. The S&P 500 down almost 3 percent. You've got every sector lower. The hardest hit is consumer discretionary. CARMAX is a part of that story. Ugly results today. That stock down 23%. But it's weakness across the board. Utilities are at the bottom of the list. So is information technology. Energy is faring the best as a group. It's down 1%. As you can see, yields are higher again. The two-year note yield almost at 4.2%. Small caps down more than 3%. They rose more than three percent yesterday. Here's our chart of the day, though. It is Apple getting slammed as Bank of America cuts the stock to neutral from buy. We'll talk much more about the reason in just a bit. Also coming up on the show today, he's been calling for a fall in the fall for a long time. Now it is playing out. Canaccord's Tony Dwyer will join us with his latest thinking on how long this market pain will last. Plus, we'll get key insights into the state of the consumer in these uncertain times. And we are joined by Max Levchin, the CEO of Buy Now, Pay Later Company, a firm whose stock is also getting slammed in this sell-off. Let's get straight, though, to the overall market with our first guest, David Rosenberg from Rosenberg Research. David, you've been negative for a long time on the market, on the economy. Is this how you expected it to play out?
1: Uh, Well, broadly speaking, uh, Sarah, the answer, you know, would be yes. And, you know, we have the Fed, I mean, really what's what's happened in the past 24 hours now that we've got the Bank of England behind us is, is the Fed has just been relentless in its hawkish rhetoric uh, into an inverted yield curve, uh, surging dollar contraction in the monetary base a- and the onset of recession. Uh, and so uh, that just has precipitated this uh, ongoing risk off trade. Uh, and uh, it's probably not going to end until, until the Fed. Uh, and never mind pauses until the Fed embarks yeah. on the next easing cycle, which is probably at least a year away.
0: But here's what's not playing out exactly as you forecast. The economy is not weakening that much. I know you, you think there's a recession and a lot of people at this point now are jumping on that bandwagon. But the data today, I mean, did you see jobless claims? Well below consensus. Now an now April low, the, the tightness in the labor market, which I guess just gives fuel to the bears who say the Fed has the green light to, to go even more aggressively.
1: Yeah, you know, well, well. firstly, Sarah, we, we, we did have back-to-back quarters of negative real GDP. And then it looks like we have basically roughly flat for the third quarter. Uh, that condition, and remember that, you know, we can talk about GDI, that's income, but GDP is spending. Uh, and that's been flat to negative this year. So it's debatable as to whether or not the economy is in recession. That much is true. Uh, But when the conference board's leading economic indicator, leading, not coincident, is down six months in a row, uh, and that database is back to 1959, the die is cast uh, for the recession. It's a matter as to whether it starts uh, in the fourth quarter or the first quarter next year. Your point on jobless claims, 100 percent true. It is a very interesting labor market. uh, And the claims numbers just tell you about firings. They tell you about pink slips and the firing rate is coming down because companies are hoarding labor because we've come through these past couple of years of acute worker shortages. Um, But when you look beneath the veneer, what's also happening is that the hiring rate is coming down. So jobless claims don't tell you about hirings, they tell you about firings. Uh, But we know, for example, everybody loves to focus on the JOLTS data. Everybody just focuses on job openings. But people don't talk about the fact that since February, new hires in the JOLTS survey are negative 450,000, that's since February. So we're heading to a stage now where firing rates are low, but hiring rates are dropping uh, and roughly matching now what firings are doing. So I think we're gonna head into a situation, Sarah, where we're not gonna get probably maybe contractions in employment, but employment is probably gonna flatten or stagnate. And if the participation rate continues to go up like it has uh, this year, uh, even with a flat employment profile, the unemployment rate by this time next year is sitting above 6%, uh, and that is going to be very much disinflationary as far as wage rates are concerned.
0: So you think the Fed is making a big mistake, keeping up the hawkish rhetoric, continuing to hammer the markets with this higher rates, holding it high for a longer time?
1: Well, at one point, uh, I thought the Fed was making a big mistake uh, until it became very apparent to me in the past couple of months, and especially post-Jackson Hole, Uh, that they actually are intent on generating the conditions for a recession. Uh, So it's not a mistake. Uh, I think this is deliberate. You have Jay Powell is comparing himself to Paul Volcker and Paul Volcker deliberately created the conditions for back-to-back recessions to crush supply-side inflation. And all you ever hear from Jay Powell is comparisons not to Arthur Burns, not to McChesney Martin, not to Bernanke or Greenspan or anybody else except Paul Volcker. So I don't know if it's a mistake. I think this is exactly what they want to see happen. They want to see asset markets crack. That's happening, uh, and that's part and parcel of weakening the economy sufficiently to get to their two percent holy grail inflation. So it might not be a mistake. This could be exactly what it is that they want.
0: The, 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 there is an argument, though, David, that we might have. So we'll have a recession. The Fed is trying to engineer that, but it, but it would be shallow. We don't have the kind of leverage that was built up during the Great financial crisis, or great recession, household balance sheet, corporate balance sheets are in pretty decent shape, and we just need to take this this medicine to bring inflation down, which is starting to happen, and on the other side things will look all right. Do you disagree well, with that? I,
1: I'm not going to, yeah, I mean, that that's I'm not going to dispute that, but I think that the big risk is that we went into this year, went into this bear market, uh, the bear market, the bear market in equities, and, and now you're starting to see home prices go down. Uh, we've gone into this um this year uh, with households more naked long long-duration assets than they've ever been in the past. We went ended this year with the household sector you know $45 trillion of naked long equity exposure, $45 trillion of so-called wealth of course built up into the housing market. So the question you have to ask is it's not about the liabilities it's about what happens if we get asset deflation. We get asset deflation because, you know, outside of the dot-coms in late 99, we did go into this with the biggest equity market bubble of all time. And this housing bubble, by the way, the price bubble, I'm not talking about leverage, but the price bubble in residential real estate was bigger than it was in oh six and oh seven when I was pounding my fist on the table uh, when I was at Mother Merrill. Uh, what happens oh, yeah. if you get double deflation in two critical assets on the household balance sheet that come to $90 trillion dollars? Equities and residential real estate and then the flow through to the negative wealth effect mm-hmm. on spending uh, for 70% of GDP That's the consumer So that's what yeah. I'm talking about is that that is that the prospect for this to be a more deeply rooted recession Could rely on the asset side of the balance yeah. sheet and the implications that has on confidence and spending over the next 12 to 18 months
0: I knew that was going to be too rosy of a scenario for you. <laughs> so, David, you have recommended bonds, and that has not worked out. On this on this view that inflation would come down quickly and we'll be in recession. And it's just not mm. happening. Bond yields continue to rise. When, when does well, that turn? You know,
1: well, so bond yields, so let's take a look and see why bond yields have gone up. Because it's not been about inflation. We know that commodity prices have been coming down very sharply in the past several months. We know now we're seeing some cracks emerge in the rental story. The Case Shiller Home Price Index just came out for July. It was negative. That was a bit of a surprise. Uh, and you're taking a look at these market-based inflation expectations. You're taking a look at the survey data on inflation expectations, uh, and um, and even Paola said that they've been remarkably stable, and actually they've come well off their peaks. What's caused this run up in, in, in nominal yields has been the real rate and the term premium, and that all comes down to the Fed. And uh, I, I'm, a, I'm with a lot of other folks I'd say probably including yourself that who, who thought that, you know, this time last year, uh, you know, the Fed, the Fed's dot plots are 0.25 for the end of this year. And all of a sudden, everybody's at 4 percent plus. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the Fed has reset uh, interest rates across the curve and across asset classes. The fact of the matter is that you're quite right. That, that's one of the things that Fed is that that's what the Fed has done to the stock market to some extent is they've taken uh, the mm-hmm. N out of Tina. There is now an alternative. And so, you know, you've got attractive yields after tax in munis, uh, 4% front end yields in the treasury market. Um, look, there's a something that never gets talked about ever on business or financial media shows is the 10 trillion dollar market called the market for corporate bonds, uh, which have been reset, I think very favorably here. If you're looking for an asset class, yeah. you're willing to put some toes in the risk pool. Uh, I mean, you, you've got, um, you, you know, let, you're not talking about high yield. Uh, you know, you're talking about yeah. Uh, Single-A corporate bonds right now are yielding five and a quarter percent uh, So without talking about what's already happened in the past 12 months, and it's not been about inflation expectations or the economy, you know, I'd be thoroughly embarrassed if I got the economy wrong and bond yields shot up. This is really about the Fed. The Fed giveth, the Fed taketh away. They'll give again at some point. I'm very encouraged from the bond market standpoint as to how well-behaved inflation expectations have come. So on the day where the Fed stops taking the carry away, and they pause, mm-hmm. and then they, pivot, and that day will happen. We're going to get a monster rally uh, in the treasury market. For the time being, though, so you there's a lot like of them. places yeah. to put money in the fixed income market—not just treasuries, but muni's and corporate bonds, uh, especially mm-hmm. in, especially in the uh, investment grade market, even in tranches like the uh, triple B double B's. Uh, for people that want to focus on getting attractive yields, yeah. even in real terms, uh, i would be focusing my attention there.
2: All
0: right, got it. David, thank you for joining us today. David Take Rosenberg, down. always good to check in. We've got a more than 600, almost 30-point sell-off here. And amid the market sell-off, the best-performing S&P sector right now is energy, despite being down nearly a percent. Joining us now is Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. Paul, with, with reports now that OPEC Plus is looking to cut production, to WTI back at $90 a barrel, where do you think we're headed?
3: Yeah, it feels pretty good here. I mean, we've got the OPEC meeting next uh, Wednesday, the 5th of October, and uh, it looks like it could be a one million barrel a day cut that will be announced. Now, that's not actually going to come through uh, because of the total mess that is OPEC production levels versus quota. But the other thing, uh, Sarah, is the Strategic Petroleum Reserve core down is is, uh, tapering now, and that's also getting people excited as we head into winter.
0: Sorry, I should have mentioned it's Brent that hit 90 earlier. WTI is still about $81 a barrel, which is key, right? Because we're we're monitoring this hurricane. It looks like the oil facilities and production is is okay, Paul, not as disruptive in past hurricanes.
3: Yeah, there's been some talk about uh, fertilizer imports into Tampa. But as you know, Florida doesn't really have any oil and gas. And and the, the Gulf Coast stuff, which is obviously offshore Louisiana and Texas, seems unaffected, absolutely.
0: So what do you do with these oil companies right now? The the sector's still up 31% year to date. It's the only sector that's still in the green. Is that is that a good place to hide in market turmoil? It worked early in the year. Now with these recession concerns and lower oil prices, hard to know.
3: Yeah, it is hard to know. I mean, we worry about it because it's a high beta, high volatility sector. So that means that in a bad market, typically it's it's going to underperform. But, you know, as I've said, and you said, we're heading into winter. We've got the OPEC cup cut coming up. We've got the SPR. The SPR at the margin has been an enormous pressure on oil markets. And as you said, whether you look at Brent or WTI, it's still remarkable given how weak China demand has been this year, given how Russia hasn't come out of the market from an oil supply point of view. It's quite remarkable that we're arguably looking here at a floor of 80 that's been established because this year it's kind of been bearish and um, you know that's important because if the floor is 80 then the mid cycle is 100 and the peak is 120 you want to buy all these stocks and so i think the timing into winter is getting exciting for some people in the face of a market that's terrible for a high beta high volatility group so it it is tricky Uh, but i think on a on a one-year five-year view type thing this is a great group to be in
0: got it paul thank you paul thank you very much Appreciate Thanks. it. With the Dow down about 568 points, we've got about 46 minutes left of trading. The S&P 500 is down two and a half percent. The Nasdaq down 3.4 percent. Just a few minutes ago, we were down about three and three quarters percent. That was just about the low of the session. But everything in tech is getting hit right now, except for Octa. Basically, every everything else, the biggies are weighing on the index: Apple, Tesla, Amazon, Nvidia, Microsoft, Meta, Alphabet all falling hard today. Is this the Apple buying opportunity you've been waiting for? We're going to ask an analyst where he stands in the debate as Bank of America cuts its rating on the stock today, which is falling almost 6%, while Rosenblatt upgrades the stock, kind of a battleground right now. And up next, Ken Accord's Tony Dwyer joins us with his latest message on the market. He had been calling for a fall in the fall for some time. Certainly feels like that's what we're seeing right now. We'll be right back.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
0: Check out today's stealth mover, Miller Knoll, and you may want to have to take a seat if you're an investor in this stock. The office furniture maker missing Wall Street's revenue estimates, issuing a weaker second quarter guidance, citing the tough macro environment. The company says it is taking steps to improve profits and cash flow by reducing spending and initiating a voluntary retirement program. Stock obviously been hit. It had a good run during COVID when everybody was buying office chairs for their for their homes and apartments. Uh, Given back some of that now. Let's get to the broader market, the weakness we are seeing here across the board. Another sharp down day with us now is Canaccord Genuity chief market strategist Tony Dwyer. It's just brutal days like today. Barely any winners. We're now 34 percent off the highs in the Nasdaq. David Rosenberg, who's pretty negative, said we have to wait another year until the Fed starts cutting for this to be over. What do you think?
2: Uh, I don't. You know, uh, as you know, we've been kind of cautious throughout the year, but I think it's going to be quicker than that. You know, Sarah, we've we've done this a long time. The, the Fed always, before they cut, is the most aggressive in terms of tightening. So the fall fall that we've been talking about is is wrapped around the two year note yield. And the question that I'm most frequently getting is, what bottoms? How do you create the low versus a low? And what I found is, since 1960, I looked at since it's been a 500 stock index. The only, there has never been a time where the two year note yield made a new high for the cycle and the S&P bottomed before it or simultaneous to it. The median delay is about 37 uh, weeks. The shortest is two. So in other words, what the data is telling us is that, you know, we were gonna go make new lows. And at some point, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the UK and the Bank of England didn't think that they were gonna do quantitative easing a week ago. You no, things unravel quickly, and when they do, the central banks tend to capitulate, and I think that'll be the case as we move into the end of the year.
0: But, but, but to be clear, the Bank of England had to step in because they were dealing with some market dysfunction and trying to bail out the That's pension right. funds that, that were going to face margin calls. What That's we're what talking, talking about here is potentially the Fed—you're you're saying the Fed is going to have to blink because why? Because of the market turmoil or because of the economy?
2: There's there's always two reasons they break something through their tightening or you get into a, a severe economic weakness. Now, David was talking about hiring plans. If you look at the National Federation of Independent Hiring Plans Index, it leads the unemployment rate by four months. It's been deteriorating significantly, suggesting by the end of the year you're going to have a pretty nice bump up in the unemployment rate, while inflation is already, especially durable goods and non-durable goods, inflation is already coming down. So you're going to be in a situation with a tumultuous market, the fall, fall, um, weakening inflation, the one-year, two-year, and five and year, 10-year break-evens are coming down, and the unemployment rate is spiking, that's hard for the Fed to not at least make what I would call a neutral pivot. But just to be clear, sir, there's two reasons that the Fed capitulated. Remember the Christmas Eve massacre in 2018? Um, Orange County declaring bankruptcy in 1994, long-term capital in 1998, Asian economic crisis in 1997, European debt crisis 2011, et cetera, et cetera. It always comes from somewhere. Yeah. When, they, when they tighten like this, they break something.
0: So what is your advice to people? Just, just sit it out, wait it out, and wait for some sort of signal change from the Fed to put more money to work? What do you do?
2: So I'm sure this story is annoying to you by now, Sarah, but each time I talk about my dad coming down into the basement, looking at my brother and I saying, hey, you know, don't just sit there, do something. And our input this year has been the opposite. Don't just do something. Sit there. You really need to have a high conviction level to withstand the volatility. Hell, you can buy at any given point. Um, but will you stay with that buy when it goes against you? And that's where the, our core fundamental thesis comes into play. It is, of course, we use technical analysis and market analysis. You know that. But when you have it, you if you don't have it rooted in a core fundamental thesis, you get whipsawed. And the core fundamental thesis here is historically, let's get the emotion out of it. It always comes with a Fed pivot in this kind of in this kind of environment, and that is. Per, preceded by a peak in the two-year note yield, which we only saw a couple of days ago.
0: I guess some assurance from Bank of England on that front this week that they, that they were there, they were still in the game to bail out, I guess, investors in well, some in some way or another, even if something well, has to break.
2: Works. It's the playbook that they know that works. Yeah. You know, the global central banks have done this, and yeah. the Fed will do it again. Um, because when you, listen, the channeling your inner Volcker was bad enough when you were at a generational low in debt to GDP, which we were at the time. And I've been talking about, you gotta be careful you get what you wish for, Mr. Powell, when you're channeling your inner Volker, because you're shutting down economic activity with a generational, right near a generational high in debt to GDP with rising inventories and slackening demand, especially globally. You know there's a lot of risk that comes with that that's beyond you know in the especially in the private credit market that's been the driver throughout this entire last 10 years
0: tony thank you for thank you for joining us good to have you on a thank day like today you. of course great to see you tony dwyer from canaccord look at nike shares plunging more than 40 percent this year up next, a bull bear debate on whether investors should buy this beaten down stock before the company reports earnings after the bell today. We'll be all over that. And later, we will discuss the outlook for the IPO market, among other things, with firm CEO Max Lepchin, who knows a thing or two about taking companies public. We're down on the Dow about 535. We are off the lows at this point, but still a broad-based sell-off. Only two Dow stocks higher, travelers and Visa. We'll be right back.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx.
5: Nike
0: reporting earnings after the bell. A lot of bearish sentiment on Wall Street. At least eight brokerages have cut their price targets on the stock in the last two weeks. So time to sell or is it a buying opportunity? We've got two sides of that debate right now. Joining us is Adrian Yee of Barclays, who recently downgraded the stock to equal weight. And Peral Dadania of RBC Capital, who initiated coverage last week with an outperform. So Adrian, what, what is the big problem here
5: and is it already in the stock? So there's two big issues here. Um, the first and foremost, of which is the uncertainty of the China market. That is in the stock. Um, so we're, the, the constraint consensus is expecting China to be down again, down about 15%. Everything we're sharing after their quarter end is that China is improving. So this could be the quarter. Uh, this coming up Monday quarter could be the one where they inflect positively or approach flat. So that is in the stock. The second piece of it is you know, future demand, potential recession. Um, particularly in the North American market where we're starting to see a lot of inventory inventory in North America growing for, about 40 percent, 38 percent faster than sales. Those are the two big ones.
0: Pearl, why are you not as concerned about those issues?
6: Yeah, so we've had the opportunity to look at this uh, with a fresh pair of eyes um, and we're, we're looking through some of the noise, right? Um, as you've alluded to, some of the negativities already in the share price. The stock is down 40% year-to-date. It's on a PE multiple that's in line with this 10-year historical average. And as far as we're concerned, the fundamental reasons to own a stock like this haven't changed. If you're a medium to long-term investor, um, you, 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 you're buying into an attractive sportswear industry that has you know, long-run fundamental growth support behind it. There are stock-specific drivers at Nike related to margin opportunity. It's obviously the, um, the sector bellwether, but also arguably the consumer discretionary bellwether. And yes, there's a lot of negativity out there in the short term. But if you're willing to take a slightly longer term approach, then we're probably getting closer to points where or levels where it's starting to look attractive.
0: Interestingly, you guys aren't that far apart on your price comparison on your price targets. Adrian, you're at 110 equal weight, and Paralle you're outperform at 125. Uh, so, so when would you step in, Adrian, to buy this? When you when you've heard that the inventory problems are worked through, or, or are you longer term worried about demand here?
5: So, I would say, and uh, our price target is uh, fiscal year end at the end of calendar next year. So, it's really kind of a 15 my pre- price target. I'd say we, you know, we kind of pressured the the downside we've done a downside analysis um you know case study on kind of what eps could be i think the over under heading into this print for fiscal 23 ending may is probably about 350 the company can guide above 350 streets at about 364 right now Um, there are some estimates that are kind of negative estimates that sort of below that around 330 but it's really the out year right the fiscal 24 year that i think the over under there is about four dollars eps if we have on constant pressure from uh, uncertainty from the demand and uh, promos coming back which we are starting to see some of that in the North American market and earnings can't go up right stocks go up when earnings are consistently revised upwards that's gonna be a pressure point on the stock so what we're looking for is an easing of that kind of inventory spread that I just mentioned so if the inventory spread starts to contract then they are moving through inventory and demand line is flatlining and that's what we're looking for.
0: Peral, is Nike in worse shape than others on the inventory problem in North America?
6: Um, so, yeah, so if we cover Nike, Adidas, Puma in the in the sports brand uh, sector. Um, I would say given its size and scale, obviously there is um, in, in, in absolute volume terms, we, we have to take that into account. So there's clearly, um, you know, a, a market level problem here. But I think that a lot of the uh, concerns that relate to inventory are, are, are more focused on apparel um, and broad-based apparel, not just within sportswear. Uh, when we look at Nike's business, um, 60% or two-thirds of it almost uh, are, are foot- related to footwear, and footwear arguably has uh, less competition. It has uh, less, less, you know, branded in the space, so to speak. Um, so, you know, we understand and we recognize that the concerns on the, on the inventory side and we're not saying footwear will be immune, but so far what we've seen is, is very much apparel related. And I'd just like to also add, right, yes. that, that one of the key debates, uh, as my colleague uh, rightly mentioned, is, is on China. China is is certainly a negative sentiment driver for now. Um, but Nike has clearly guided to what the uh, headwinds for China are going to be. And by the end of the second fiscal quarter, that should be in better shape. Uh, some of the indicators we look at do point to an improving backdrop in the China market. And actually, we take a slightly more positive view going into 23. Assuming that China recovers, then I think that that can be a significant inflection point for the market and investors' view towards sporting good stocks, which at the moment sentiment is very low.
0: We're seeing this big sell-off, uh, Adrian, and, that, and that's kind of my, my other question, which is to what extent is Nike a bellwether here? Because we're going into an earnings season. Nike's always out of sync, it reports first, and it's, it's dealing with the FX issues, it's dealing with the macro headwinds, it's got the China exposure, the inventory problems. Earnings expectations overall for the market are a little bit of a wild card in a debate right now, and I'm wondering what we can glean from Nike and how much of it is, is Nike specific? Yeah, the,
5: they're the latest, right? They're going to be the most recent touch point that we have on the overall consumer and the global consumer at that. Um, I think, you know, just generally speaking, global macro not looking that great, right? FedEx, Ford, a lot of these big company global numbers are coming out, and they're not looking really great. So I would say that the what we're going to get from them, I think the two critical points are what are they saying about sort of global demand? What we saw during the quarter from the retailers is strength. Right? So, whenever we're looking at inventory, I always remind people that that is a point on the balance sheet for future demand three, six, nine months down the road. That's what we're worried about, right? The demand destruction that comes after, right, in, in the coming months and so and so forth. So, I think the two key things here are any commentary on kind of what they're seeing. We would expect them to say that things are good today from, from the retail partners. But the key thing that will tell you and it will trigger kind of whether or not we have an inventory issue. We did notice that they pulled a minimum advertised pricing during the quarter, their map pricing. So you could always mark mm-hmm. down their products behind the scenes, but you could not advertise it. And so that's a sign that things may be a little bit yeah. you know over their season inventory.
0: Got it. Adrian Peral, thank you very much. We'll be watching for that number after the bell. I'll be covering that. Here's where we stand right now in the markets. We've come back a little bit off the lows. When we started the hour, we were down more than 600. We're now down 471 on the Dow. S&P is lower by about two and a quarter percent. It was two and a half moments ago, and the Nasdaq is still down 3%. We've still got every sector down, broad-based weakness, especially in tech, but all over this market again. Up next, an exclusive interview with the firm CEO Max Levchin on whether he's starting to see any signs of slower consumer spending. And a reminder, you can listen to Closing Bell on the go by following the Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back with the S&P down 2.2%. As the Fed keeps raising rates and talking about it to combat inflation, fears of a hard landing are growing and investors are not looking kindly on the payment players like Affirm. Check out that stock. It's down 80 percent year to date. Joining us now in an exclusive interview is Affirm CEO Max Lepchin. Max, thank you for joining us. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. It's been brutal for your stock and and others like that, newly listed companies. You went public January last year. Do you regret? taking
7: this company public? No, I, I, I cannot say I do. I think uh, part, of, uh, part of the calculation was uh, making sure we're well capitalized to weather any sort of storm. We were lucky enough to uh, have our investors trust then and we intend to deliver on the promises we made. So uh, no, I think uh, the current turbulence notwithstanding, I'm, I'm excited to continue delivering on the promises we made.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I ask because you've taken companies public before, obviously, and, and we're in this period right now, this bear market where investors are wondering if, if these new industries like buy now, pay later, newly listed stocks, certainly the unprofitable ones are going to be around during the next recession. And they're going to come out of this cycle. And who's going to come out as a winner? How, how are you talking to investors about those tough questions right now?
7: I think proof's always in the pudding, so uh, we intend to show much more than tell. But we are extraordinarily well capitalized. We have our eyes on the most important metric that matters to us, and that is credit performance. We obviously have partners that rely on us to deliver yield, so we want to make sure we keep those partners very happy. We have a lot of merchants that rely on us for incremental sales, and we intend to make good on that. And consumers probably one of our most important constituents rely on us for incremental purchasing power, especially in an inflationary environment where that power disappears right before their eyes as prices go up. And so we have a lot of people who depend on us, uh, our shareholders included, and we, we are very excited to do exactly right by them. Uh, we, we are quite confident we'll emerge as victors uh, from, from the current downturn.
0: Well, the credit cycle, I think, is what also has investors really worried right now, and everyone wants to know about delinquencies. What can you tell us about how they're trending? Why why shouldn't investors be worried?
7: Um, I think the real answer here is because we are firmly in control of our fate there. Um, Our average life of loan is just north of four months, so we have quite a lot of structural flexibility and control We never have to go back many years and sort of regret decisions made then um we also underwrite every single loan precisely to the current economic condition and what the uh, forward rate curve tells us so we're able to control our destiny there quite precisely we never have to commit to lines of credit and then regret the choices we've made so in terms of ability to control for credit outcomes in terms of ability to manage credit delinquencies you know we, we feel extraordinarily good and we absolutely have been keeping our eyes very much on the road ahead and hands firmly on the steering wheel. Um, so far, incidentally, U.S. consumer is not exactly stressed out. The employment is still nearly full. Um, people are, generally speaking, paying their bills just on time and, and, and thereabouts. And we are seeing tiny signs of stress uh, at the most vulnerable demographics, people that are traditionally kind of in the uh, having a harder time holding down a job, even in the best of times. But generally speaking, U.S. consumer is still quite healthy.
0: Really? So so tiny signs of stress. Where are you seeing that? And I, and I wonder what you're seeing on the inflation front as well and their purchasing power.
7: The, the inflation front is very predictable. There is more demand for credit than ever. I think you can see that in our stats and uh, stats for large. Folks are still shopping. They're still buying things. They are having slightly harder time buying as much as they could a year ago for the same price, and therefore they're asking themselves, is there some way for, to pay for this over time? Ideally without interest, and certainly without hidden fees or tricky gotchas, which is what the credit card industry is famous for. BNPL and a firm in particular is the answer to that. And so I think we're we're delivering on that squarely for all of our consumer constituents. Uh, in terms of just to answer the stress question, uh, like I said, just the uh, lower credit tiers are seeing some degree of deterioration, which is easy for us to control for. Uh, but again, very broadly speaking, U.S. consumer is healthy and paying their bills on time.
0: Do you have any issues yourself getting money from banks or the market?
7: Um, we in, on, on the equity side of the house, we are very capitalized, as you can see, in our cash position is extremely healthy. Um, in terms of our funding of, of the loan volume, we have a very wide and largely diversified set of sources of funding, and um, something on the order of 20 plus, um, Most of these folks have very long-standing relationships with us and uh, commitments that make us feel very good about our source of funds. We are well-funded for all of the growth that we expect for this year and and beyond. And so, no, um, I think so long as we continue delivering on the credit quality that we've promised our investors, we have nothing to worry about there as well.
0: Well, we certainly appreciate you coming on and sharing all the information, all the color. Max, thank you very much. In good times right. in and bad. Max Lepchin, CEO of a firm. Look at the travel stocks among the names getting hit pretty hard in today's session as well. Seema Modi here with some of the names and some of the details. Seema. Hey, Sarah, consumer-facing names including travel and hospitality stocks are
8: trading down at this hour. Uh, names with an international tilt, like Booking Holdings, you'll see, trading down more than its counterparts. Expedia also down as well. The cruise lines are off sharply at this hour. Carnival down about 7.4% ahead of its Q3 earnings report, which is out tomorrow morning, where analysts are expecting the cruise line to report its first rise in quarterly revenue. This will also be the first report under new CEO Josh Weinstein. After Arnold Donald stepped down earlier this summer. Uh, all of these cruise stocks are trading down right now, but I would point out for the month. Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Line are among the few gainers in the month of September after Royal Caribbean uh, released some data, Sarah, last week saying that bookings are starting to accelerate as COVID restrictions ease and uh, now allowing unvaccinated passengers on board. So uh, that has provided some relief for these stocks. We'll see if that, those gains can uh, hold
0: on as we wait
8: for Carnival's,
0: Carnival's report tomorrow. Seema Modi. Seema, thank you. Watching the chip stocks as well among the big losers on Wall Street today. Christina Parts and Evelos here with a closer look at those names and especially the Apple suppliers, Christina, getting hit off that rare downgrade.
9: You know I'm going to talk about it. So semiconductors right now, the biggest losers on the NASDAQ 100. AMD, let's talk about that. That share price right now, we are going to show it on your screen a bit, down, was down about 8%, followed by NVIDIA on Semi, NXP, Microchip, big names like Qualcomm, even Broadcom aren't too far behind as well. A sea of red, and it's a lot of the semiconductors that are the reason why you're seeing the NASDAQ 100 down. AMD and NVIDIA, though, those are the two names the farthest from their 52-week highs, down over 60 percent. And we have a few drivers. Sarah, like you mentioned, Apple's weakness worrying chip investors is companies like Qualcomm. You got Micron that are chip suppliers. So when Apple's not doing well, it has a ripple effect. And then you also had this Bloomberg report stating that South Korean manufacturers saw inventory rise at the fastest pace in a decade as of this September. So that Fast pace, the pace of the drop could have a ripple effect down the supply chain. And it raises the question for American companies, is it going to get worse? And that's exactly a question we want to ask when it comes to Micron's earnings, which are out. Look at that. Coincidentally, in 15 minutes, Wedbush writing their guide likely proves not conservative enough after shares right now have dropped, what I mean, by 50 percent just this year alone, worse than the S&P 500, worse than the S&P IT index and worse than the semiconductor socks index. Several themes, though, that I want to pay attention to for Micron specifically, you've got memory pricing that has been decreasing NAND and DRAND. And that's we want to see how long that's going to go on. Any comments about that? And that's not only because of weak PC and smartphone sales. But now we're starting to see that slowdown in auto, industrial and data center chips and what that means for respective inventory levels. So these are all themes we're going to be paying close attention to in 14 minutes. Sarah?
0: All right. We will see you then. Christina partzola Micron coming after the bell. We are going to skip a commercial break here and go straight into the closing bell market zone because we've got 14 minutes left of trading. And we are monitoring this pretty broad and deep sell-off again here on Wall Street The S&P 500 down 2.2% right now. The NASDAQ comp is off 3%. We are off the worst levels of the session, but it's still a pretty ugly day. Truist, Keith Lerner is here to break down all these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Charter Equity Research's Ed Snyder is here to talk more. Apple and Diana Olick on mortgage REITs. We'll kick it off, Keith, with the broader market. Energy actually about to go positive in the S&P 500. Everybody else is down. It's another ugly day. Now, if you're keeping score at home, the S&P is almost 25% off the highs. How much more pain are we in for?
10: Yeah, well, great to be with you, Sarah. Another uh, challenging day. After a really good day uh, yesterday, um, we continue to think we have this very complex global backdrop and that, you know, it, it makes sense to continue to be up in quality and defensive. But I will say, really, on a more of a short-term perspective, we're actually getting a little bit more positive short-term. And even today, I know it looks ugly today, but we're watching a couple of kind of small positive divergences. Um, yes, uh, you know, Apple's down a lot. Utilities are down. And t- towards the end, of at least a, a market decline, we, you bring down the winners as, as well. And we're seeing that today. Mm. And then you're seeing, like, as you mentioned, energy, a little bit of a bid there as well. And most of our technical indicators are the most stretched to the downside that we've seen since the mid-June lows and also before the, the pandemic lows. So, again, I want to be clear, we don't think this is time to be an offense. We thought, um, you know, when the market was closer to 42, 4300 we were recommending to reduce risk. But we're down 15 percent off those August highs. We don't think this is the time to press to the downside, at least not short term.
0: So, but everything you're mentioning is sort of technical or positioning or sentiment related so you so you think we're due for a short-term bounce here nothing fundamentally has changed as far as the inflation and central bank and global economic environment has it i mean what is is that what it's going to take to really find a bottom
10: yeah well you know part of the market is is it's all about where things are relative to expectations and we we just think on a on a short-term basis that things are getting a little bit uh you know one sided here and again, I mean, the negativity is, is pretty wide. But you're right. Fundamentally, I mean, the global economy is, go, is, is weakening. We think it's going to continue to weaken into next year. I mean, we have not only supersized rate hikes in the U.S., but we have the tightest global central bank uh, policy that we've seen in decades as well. So, yes, I think overall um, that the, the fundamentals are still relatively weak. The global economy is still relatively weak. But again, you know, markets don't move in a straight line and we are in a more tactical environment. So therefore, again, I mean, at this point, uh, we would be a little bit less, you know, um, defensive or pushing against them when we've just gone down 15 percent.
0: A lot of bad news in there, I guess, is, is the point. Let's talk Apple, Keith, because down five and a quarter percent today. Unusual move for the biggest stock. Bank of America downgraded it this morning to neutral from buy. The concern there, weaker consumer demand. But another firm disagreed. Rosenblatt actually upgraded the stock to buy from neutral and raised its price target To 189. Joining us for more is Ed Snyder, Charter Equity Research Analyst. Where do you come down, Ed, between the two on what to do with Apple?
11: Well, I'd be quite bearish here. We've been predicting this since January, the increased uh, down cycle on the recession. We've only just hit the beginning of it. It hit retail. We saw that in spades last quarter. Uh, It's now moving industrial and automotive. But as far as Apple's concerned, it was inevitably going to get to them sooner or later. The shocking thing here is that the last time that Apple fell short of unit sales, uh, you didn't see it until the Faithful bought all their phones. So they launched in September. The Faithful finished buying their phones probably around December. Uh, they told their suppliers the second week of December after iPhone 6S, uh, you know, back off with the management of what we expect. Now they're already two weeks after launch, they're already saying it. So it's it's a bit more acute than even iPhone 6S. And I think it's going to get terribly worse.
0: The thing is, when it comes to demand, it, it seems all very speculative. It comes from a report, it comes from hearsay, it comes from monitoring, and, and you know, sometimes that's right. But how, how do we know what's actually going on with these new units?
11: I, don't, I wouldn't consider it to be speculative. There's been uh, lots of indication that demand is weakening. last year, at this time, several of the sub suppliers into the China food chain uh, especially Corvo, ran into a huge inventory problem. Sales slowed down. All the Chinese thought they'd sell a lot. They didn't. They're still sitting on an inventory. They're going to have a rough time with it coming up here. And then you started seeing ripples of that start to hit Samsung. Uh, you heard TI report retail chain was getting weak. So there's been lots of uh, quantitative information that suggests this is all happening. Apple's kind of in a weak group, right? They're, they're a completely different animal. They're very high premium phone. That have got a lot of people who really love Apple. But uh, sales haven't been spectacular in the last couple of years. Now you're facing recession, and you're, in my opinion, getting the natural consequence of that. The premium side is going to get hurt, too. And that's what's happening.
0: So, okay, so the stock is about 20 percent down now year to date. It's it's fallen. It's still trading about 23 times next year's earnings. How how do you value it? How should it be valued? More like a staple stock or more vulnerable discretionary?
11: It's very, well, obviously, they're very strong. Balance sheet's excellent. They generate a lot of cash. It is a staple stock, but it, I agree, expectations are everything. Right now, expectations remain too high, especially to you get an upgrade on Apple at this point, which I think is comical. So you're going to get uh, an element of the investors who still believe, hey, you know, we'll shake this off and things will be better. But if you're talking about... Um, uh, too little demand two weeks after they launch, then you're looking at probably one of the worst iPhone selling seasons in the history of iPhone. I don't know how bad it will get. Um, I mean, I'd be super cute, but it's going to last for quite some time. And I expect you're going to hear it a lot about this in the October reports from the semiconductor companies that supply that. So I would not be getting bullish on Apple or actually most anywhere in tech at this point, because the other shoe of the recession is starting to hit, industrial and automotive, Mike Lund said that in the pre-announcement early, this, early this, uh, in August, they did. And so you're going to hear it again the, uh, when they report the quarter um, in a few minutes or so. So there's a lot more bad news that's got to inform the, the tech valuations, and I just wait for that. And then when we get on the bottom side of it, then, then I start looking at, at getting bullish.
0: Well, it's hitting all the—everything's hit right now, as Christina said, in the chip world. But a lot of these Apple suppliers have especially hard Skyworks, Cirrus, NXP. Yeah. Thank you, Ed, for joining us. Ed Snyder, my pleasure. bears are coming out around Apple. The worst performer right now on the S&P 500 right there, it's CarMax, look at that, slamming the brakes on this one, down 25%. The used car retailer badly missing Wall Street's earnings estimates, blaming softening consumer demand, vehicle affordability, rising interest rates, and a jump in operating expenses. Phil LeBeau joins us, Phil. Do these results mean consumers have hit their limit on just how much they're willing to borrow to pay for a used car as rates are increasing?
12: Potentially, Sarah. But let's be clear here. There are some specific issues specific to CarMax that are part of the earnings miss for today. But with regard to them saying, hey, perhaps we're seeing a softening in the consumer and they noticed definite softening uh, in the second half of the quarter. Keep in mind when you look at the monthly payment for a used vehicle, it has gone up about 18 percent in the last year. Look where it is right now. The amount borrowed almost $30,000, just under $29,000. The monthly payment, now over $500. And look, we're going to get the Q3 numbers on loans and and monthly payments over the next couple of weeks. I wouldn't be surprised if that monthly payment, Sarah, is going to be up in the 530, 540 range. And you really have to ask yourself, is that the limit? Is that where people say, with higher auto loan interest rates, it's too rich for my blood?
0: Right. And Keith Lerner, the question is, what does it mean for some of the auto the other auto makers which are getting hit very hard today in the session because demand hasn't been the problem here it's been supply right phil when did we talk to mary barra like a week or two ago and she said it's not a demand problem it's a supply problem so keith do we have to start worrying about demand with with these rates rising for autos
10: yeah 100 i mean you know that this what we're seeing in this overall market is this rate shock and it's, it's going throughout the entire market. So we would still say underweight the cyclical areas of the market. We don't think you want to be in things that are leveraged to the economy at this point. We're still more focused on things like health care, uh, utilities, staples. And as you, we mentioned earlier on, energy because of the geopolitical side. And also, um, you know, I think that's a good hedge overall for, for what's happening in the, uh, the supply side of things. But, yeah, this is not the time in the cycle where you want to lean on cyclicality. You want to be more defensive. And that's where we're still positioned today.
0: Well, speaking of cyclicality, mortgage rates have been rising fast. Phil thank you, by the way. Let's hit the mortgage REITs because they are among the hardest hit names today. Diana Olick joins us. Diana, reaction to rising rates or something else going on?
9: Well, Sarah, first and foremost, it is rising rates. Of course, the 30-year fix crossed over the 7% line on Tuesday, according to Mortgage News Daily. And that made some headlines, of course. But even before that, last week's mortgage demand was pretty pitiful. Applications to refinance down 84% year over year, and applications to buy a home down nearly 30%. At 7%, just 150,000 borrowers could actually benefit from a refinance, and that's according to Black Knight. We also got some pending home sales numbers this week, showing another drop for the sixth straight month. And while sales of newly built homes had this kind of weird bounce higher in August, it was likely due to a brief drop in rates, which of course again are now higher. And if it's any consolation though, rates did come back just below 7% today, 6.82%. But always a reminder, we started this year, Sarah, at three. Oh yes,
0: painful reminder for those who are trying to buy a house. Diana Olick, Diana, thank you. Keith Lerner, so, so you think stocks are oversold. You think a lot of the bad news is in. How would you be positioning right now in the market with, with it doesn't see, you know, a lot of people want to see yields peak before they get back into the stock market. We really have we continue to see this rise.
10: Yeah. And just to be clear, I mean, this is, again, as you mentioned earlier, this is more of a a short-term position, sentiment view. Our broader view for the next 6 to 12 months is that we're in choppy waters. That's likely to continue. We're just saying if we have a little bit of strength, use that to reposition towards more a defensive bend. So stay with the defensive areas. The fixed-income markets are looking more attractive, especially with high-quality fixed income. We wouldn't be in the credit side. I will say, going back to the, the, the interest rates, which you just mentioned, Um, You know, rates hit four percent earlier this year on the 10 year. Right now, they're at 375. The two year is still well below the low earlier in in the week. And the U.S. dollar is also. So those are all, again, incrementally. Maybe that gives us a little bit of relief and stabilization. But ultimately, we think any balance should be used to reposition, to be more defensive. And that's what we've been doing most of this year. And we'll continue to look to do so because the economy, all these rate hikes are going to weigh on the economy as we look forward.
0: Yeah. OK, so we're not we're not making new highs and treasuries in the dollar today, but we we saw the highs earlier in the week. So they're, they're fresh in investors mind. We've got two minutes to go here in the trading day. We're seeing the volatility spike. Interestingly, the dollar is a little bit weaker on the day. You know, we had this big rally yesterday, Keith, off the Bank of England stepping in, intervening in the bond market to to calm things down. Was that, is that a hopeful sign or is that a problematic sign as as we go forward and we debate? What the Fed is ultimately going to do and whether it's going to stop.
10: I think it's actually somewhat problematic because it tells you that the the old medicine, um, you know, for the market is no longer there. Right. On one side, we have monetary policy that's restrictive. And now we're seeing, you know, historically, if the if the Bank of England or, or we had a big fiscal stimulus package, the market would rally on that. Right now, instead, the market sold off because they're worried about inflation. So we don't have very loose monetary policy. We have restrictive policy there. And the market um is embedding fitting from stimulus from the fiscal side so overall i think that leads to a more problematic market as we look forward again for the next six to 12 months you know the feds not coming to the rescue and the fiscal policy isn't coming to the rescue so we have to kind of go through this you know a little bit of economic pain as as powell has said uh, recently
0: yep feels painful for investors now don't have to remind them about the rescue thank you keith Lerner. it's good to have you from truest securities as we head into the close the 10 years at 375 to Keith's points, it's off the high of the week, which was above 4%, but still elevated yields. You've got every sector lower in the S&P 500. Energy's faring the best, it's barely down. The worst performing sector is actually uh, utilities along with consumer discretionary. CarMax is a big part of that story. Some of the travel stocks as well. The auto stocks are getting hit hard as we had earlier. And tech is right in the firing line. Apple, the biggest drag on the Nasdaq. And on the Dow right now, which is down 1.5%, rallied off the lows, but still an ugly day. That's it for me on Closing Dow. See you tomorrow.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.